everybody, and welcome to another episode of Book Goodies, our author podcast series. And my name is Deborah Carney. I'm your host, and today I'm joined by author Alina Adams. Um, hi, Alina. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm talking to a lot of really cool authors during this series, and you know, I just can't wait to see what you have to add to it because I'm I'm really excited about some of the projects all these folks are working on. Um, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners and give them a, an idea about who you are and, and what you do? Well, as you said, my name is Alina Adams. I started off in very traditional publishing. I wrote romance novels, Regencies for Avons. I wrote contemporary romances for Dell. I did a series of figure skating murder mysteries for Berkeley Prime Crime. I did some soap opera tie-ins when I was working for As the World Turns and Guiding Light, the Procter & Gamble soap operas. And then last year, as technology sort of moved into a brave new world, I got the rights back to many of my books, the romances and the figure skating mysteries, and I'm re-releasing them independently. But rather than just being electronic books, I'm actually releasing them as enhanced electronic books. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I, um, I would like you to explain to our readers what that actually means. Well, for instance, with the figure skating mysteries, I had five that I did for Berkeley Prime Crime, Murder on Ice, On Thin Ice, Axel of Evil, Evil, Death Drop, and Skate Crime. I took each one of those books and I made a deal with the Ice Theater of New York, who are America's premier ice dancing company staffed with professional ice skaters who have appeared at nationals and at the Olympics. And they gave me access to their entire video library. So I was able to go through the video that they had available and I was able to pick clips that worked with the stories that I had already written. I was actually working backwards. Usually when I worked at ABC Sports in their figure skating department, the line was always right to picture. Well, in this case, I had the writing and I had to get the pictures to go for it. And I found some terrific clips, some professional ice skating performances that matched what I had written in my book. So now when you're reading the figure skating mysteries, you can get along to a point in the story where someone is skating and you can click a link and you can watch that skating performance right there in the middle of the book. And now um, you had told me prior to the podcast that that links out to YouTube. If you're listening on a Kindle, if you're reading the book on a Kindle that and you don't have a wireless connection, is that uh, going to uh, make it so that you can't watch the clip right then? Do you need to be connected or does it download? Yeah. Yes, you do. You need to be connected to the Internet, and you wouldn't be able to watch on a traditional Kindle, but you would be able to watch on a Kindle Fire, and you would be able to watch on a Nook Color. Um, what you can also do is you can just get the Kindle app or the Nook app for your laptop, for your desktop, for your phone. I've heard people who are watching on their phones, and then as long as you have a connection, then you can watch the video. True. I forgot about phones. Yeah, they're connected all the time, so you can screen, stream the video right there on your phone. Yes, it's surprising how many people have actually told me that they do most of their reading on their phones these days. Well, and a year ago, I would have argued with you that I would never read a book on my phone <laughs> and that I would never read a book on a Kindle either. And I went ahead and took the plunge and downloaded the Kindle app to my Mac computer and downloaded a couple of books and I happened to be laid up for a couple of days with a with a broken toe. 
And I'm like, all right, well, there isn't anything in the house that I haven't read yet. Um, maybe I'll give this, you know, doohickey a try and I'll actually, you know, my daughter had been using a Sony reader for years and loved it. So I sat down and I actually read a novel by James Patterson and I was like, wow, I really can do this. This is, this is high enough resolution. This is cool. What I love about it is just the fact that you can have 200 books in a device, especially for the subway or for airplanes. It's the best because, you know, usually when I was packing for a plane trip, I'd have to get, well, here's my serious novel in case I'm in a serious mood. And here's my genre in case I'm in a genre mood. And with this, you have all these choices. Also, I've heard from a lot of older readers, what they love is that they can make the font size, whatever they need it to be. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I tell new authors is not to worry about your font size and to not use a fancy font. And I will then show them, if they don't believe me, I'll show them on the Kindle how that um, you can make it bigger, you can change the font to what's easier for you to read, and you can even change the paper color. You know, you can be reading uh, uh, black on white, which is, you know, default, or you can read black on cream or white on black. Right. Another thing is not to worry too much about is layout. I mean, obviously you want a nice, clean layout, but the fact is you have no idea how people are going to be reading it, whether they're going to be holding it horizontally, whether they're going to be holding it vertically, how big they'll make the font. It's important not to obsess about that because in an interesting twist of fate, you know, after how many hundred years since Gutenberg, we really don't have any control over that anymore. Yeah. (laughs) That's really funny. Um, because I do do a lot of work with uh, using Gutenberg texts. Um, And the whole reading on your phone thing, now I have a Kindle, uh, like you said, I've got, you know, a couple hundred books on there, and I've been spending a lot of time in doctor's offices because I live in New York City, and there's only so many doctors, and they tend to overbook. (laughs) So it's usually, if I have a 1 o'clock appointment, I will be seen by 4 o'clock. Yes, so, I always know it's going to be, you either can get there two hours early or you can get there on time and wait for two hours. But that two hours is going to happen. No it's going to happen no matter what. <laughs> so I'm able to bring my Kindle and I can either play Angry Birds, which I get bored <laughs> with, or I can read. And I don't have to, like you said, I don't have to decide ahead of time. You know, years ago when I took my kids to the doctors, I would bring a book that I only had like a couple chapters left to read. And then you're done. And you're like, Mm -hmm. okay, now i got to carry this book around with me, and I'm done, and I have nothing else to read. (laughs) So between the phone, the Kindle app for the phone, and, you know, uh, the Kindle itself, that gives you um, a way to read. And the resolution on the screens is so much better now. Yes, much. That it makes things readable on your phone. Um, And people watch entire movies on their phones now, I don't like that. That time. I can't quite get. Yeah, I, mean, what, I don't. I don't want to see. Uh, yeah, if it's a science fiction movie or something that you really need to see it. I mean, if it's some small, you know, intimate two-person indie, maybe. <laughs> but I, just, I don't get the whole blockbuster on your phone thing. No. No. If I'm going to see Tom Hanks or Matthew McConaughey, I want to see him on a big screen. <laughs> you want to see them larger than life. Larger than life, or at least on my MacBook Pro, and not on my, <laughs> not on my, not on my Android Droid X or whatever the heck it is I have. So, all right. So we have the enhanced versions of the books, and in addition to enhancing with video, you were telling me that you can also enhance in other ways. 
Yes, yes, that's one of the things I've done. One of my romance novels, uh, When a Man Loves a Woman, which was released by Dell in 2000, what I did was I went and I gave each of the chapters a name that corresponded to a popular song. <laughs> so when you get to a chapter heading, you can, again, click a link and listen to the song, and it will either comment on something that's going on in the story or compliment something that's going on in the story. So I created an original soundtrack for When a Man Loves a Woman. In addition, I worked with another author, Dan Ellis. She's written many, many children's books. His very first book was called The Worldwide Dessert Contest. In addition to being a children's author, Dan Ellis also writes for musical theater. He was one of the people involved in Jason Robert Brown's musical 13, which played on Broadway a few years ago. And he had written an original musical score to go with the Worldwide Dessert Contest. So what we did was we incorporated the music into the book. So once again, you're reading reading the story and you get to a key point and the book is a fantasy it's a very fun fantasy publishers weekly called it charlie and the chocolate factory meets homer price donut maker so it's got a lot of very fun very fun rhymes and um you can click a button and now you can listen to the songs that were professionally recorded by professional musical theater singers and you can read a story and get a completely original musical theater score all in one that's really, really, really incredible. Um, and that's what is setting some, you know, authors and uh, book producers uh, apart from everybody else. And, you know, not every book has to have a musical soundtrack, but the ones that do that are appropriate, I think right. that's wonderful. Because you read to relax. You right. Know, well, so I actually I gave us I gave a talk to the um, New York Writers Union a few months ago, and one of the things that I said was, just because a book can be enhanced doesn't necessarily mean that it should be. Yeah. The idea really is to take projects that would be enhanced, made better by what we're doing. For instance, I did another project where, as I mentioned, I worked for Procter & Gamble Productions and their two soap, soap operas, As the World Turns and Guiding Light, and before that I was at ABC Daytime, who also have their soap operas, and before that I was at E! Entertainment on a show called Pure Soap, so I have been basically in and out of the soap world for about um, almost 20 years now, and as soaps are not at their best times these days many of them have been canceled all my children is off the air one life to live is off the air as the world turns is off the air guiding light is off the air i created a book that was called soap opera 451 a time capsule of daytime drama's greatest moments what i did was first of all i crowdsourced the book and that i went to the fans using my blog, Soap Opera 451, using my Twitter, and I asked fans what they thought were the greatest, most memorable moments from the past 70 years of daytime drama. Then, once I had their suggestions, I took the most popular ones and I went to the actors, to the writers, to the producers who'd been involved in creating those moments, and I interviewed them about them. Mm -hmm. I compiled the interviews into a book, but then I took it to the next level in that I put links in the book where you can click a button and then go watch the scene that they're talking about. Oh, wow. In, it, in this case, the enhancement, I felt, was vital because I'm one of those people, I love reading behind-the-scenes things about movies and television and all sorts of things and music, but often I'll read an interview with someone and I want to see it right now because they've just talked about it. Right. So I was able to put together this project, Soap Opera 451, a time capsule of daytime drama's greatest moments, where the enhancement, I think, was absolutely vital to making the project work because it's not just reading the interviews, it's seeing the actual scenes. Wow. 
that's that's I want to go get that. <laughs> <laughs> and you should. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I'll go to Amazon and grab it. Um, <laughs> I, I did you list that when you when you gave me your pitch? I don't remember seeing that one. <laughs> um, for those of you that don't know, I'm doing a series of podcasts with people that I was able to reach out to through um, a, a daily, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but a daily newsletter that tells people that, uh, that syncs up people that are looking for sources with people who would like to be on a source. And I put out a query for authors and I got over 100 replies. So... Um, I'm in the middle of a podcasting marathon with um, a lot of really, really cool authors. And um, I tried to make sure that I read enough about each one so that I would know cool things like what you just told us about. So um, now if you were so what are you working on now? What's your what's your current project? Well, I also have another book that I did in 1998 for Avon called Annie's Wild Ride. And the way that the book was originally structured is that it's intercalary chapter. One chapter takes place in the present. One chapter takes place in the past. So what I'm doing with that one is because of technology, I can now offer readers the option. They can read the book the way it was originally published or they can click a button and read the whole thing in chronological order, which I think – completely changes the narrative and I know a lot of people are very nervous about having their narrative played around with and it's very possible that I'm very wrong but um, I think it makes it fun where you have that option that you can read it either the way it was originally presented or chronologically. In addition, I'm doing another project and this one is an original, this one wasn't previously published. It's called Counterpoint, an interactive family saga. Back when I was at Procter & Gamble, I developed a project for them that was called Another World Today, which took one of their former soap operas, Another World, that used to air on NBC, and it continued the story. But the twist was that at the end of every episode, there was a poll that viewers and readers could vote on to tell me where they wanted the story to go. And I would write the story based on what their feedback was. So what I'm doing with Counterpoint and Interactive Family Saga is the exact same thing. I wrote Volume 1, and Volume 1 is available right now. And at the end of it, there's a link to a message board you can go to and my Alina Adams Media Facebook page where people can go and tell me what they want to happen next. And Volume 2 is going to be based on their feedback, at the end of which they can again offer feedback. And Volume 3 will be written based on their feedback, and so on and so on. So once again, I may be completely wrong, or I may be be biting off much more than I can chew, but I'm very excited about it because it's new, and as a reader, I'm one of those people who, you know, if you don't like how a book ends, other than throwing it against the wall, there's really very little you can do. (laughs) So I'd like to empower the readers, and I'm trying to do that with CounterPoint and Interactive Family Saga. That's really interesting because that's actually what I was going to do with a a book that my son wrote um, and that I did a lot of editing in. Um, It's called uh, Animal Kingdom Jaguar uh, Return of of the Jaguar. And it's uh, it's a fantasy. It's a science fiction fantasy. And I'm not a science fiction fantasy writer. Um, I'm about to be, but I'm, I'm not yet. And I could tell throughout the book that there were little clues about what was going to be in the sequel. And I had a few people read it, and a couple people told me that they didn't have enough of an emotional connection to one character over the other. 
And what I was going to do was actually, at the end of the book, have people go to the website, tell me who was their favorite character, who should be in the sequel, and, you know, what what were some of their favorite parts of the book. And I didn't follow through with that, and I think that I actually need to do that because I would like for... I know in my mind how I think it needs to go, and because he was my son, I kind of know how he, you know, why he left those clues and, and why they would go the way they are. But to get people interactive into your books, I think, is is uh, going to be the next step, um, especially with the electronics and the way people like to be able to, you know, we used to read a book, and like you said, you either throw it against the wall because you didn't like the ending, because you can't get in touch with the author, you know, you can't say, hey, where's the sequel and why did you kill that one off and you better bring them back, you know, or there was just, that was it. That was all you had. But in today's society, people are so used to being so connected to each other that it's the, a logical next step for an author to, especially an author that wants to be able to engage their audience to step outside of your ego and say, you know, how, how did you like the book? And what, what were your favorite parts? And what do you think should happen next? And well, as I said, I'm sorry to interrupt, but as I said, I, my background is a lot is in soap operas. And soap operas go on for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So there's constant adjustment of the storyline based yeah. on fan reaction. There is an end game, but it isn't necessarily always where you go. There's so many U-turns you could take. The fact is Luke and Laura, the world-famous Luke and Laura from General <laughs> Hospital, were not originally supposed to get together. It was just the chemistry of the actors and the popularity of Tony Geary. So to me, I sort of came up and got my train in an industry where you have to listen to the fans and there's yep. no such thing as this is the author's vision I'm not going to budge from it yeah and that's really awesome and now when you were traditionally published obviously that was your only choice back then um, and you said you've gotten back the rights to a lot of your manuscripts and is it because you wanted to go indie because you knew now that there were these other things you would be able to do with them or was it just that you they were done publishing them and you know you wanted to revive them well, here's what happened with the Skating Mystery series, which was the first one that I did. I actually went back to the editor who had worked on the books. She's a big skating fan. I explained to her, I have this deal with the Ice Theater of New York. Um, I'll even, and by I, I mean my husband, and I just mostly stand over his shoulder and criticize, but he's the one who builds my books for me. And um, I said, we will even build them, and we will hand them to you, and you can just re-release them. And she really liked the idea, and it went up a few layers at the publishing house, and they just weren't ready for it. Mm-hmm. And I really felt like I had the idea, I had the material, the books were already written. Right. I just really wanted to get them out there, and the way to do it ended up me doing it on my own. Well, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are independently publishing. And for the authors listening, that's one of the big differences between using a traditional publishing house and um, using either a small press or using just releasing them totally yourself is that you have more control. So right. well, to, be, to be fair, one thing that I can say is that the books that I had had already been edited in the sense that I wasn't just taking a manuscript and putting it right. out there. These were all books that had gone through the editorial pro- uh, process in a large publishing house. So I was a bit ahead of the game from someone who might just have a manuscript and that I knew that these books had been vetted in a certain sense and were ready to go. It was really just a matter of adding the enhancements and physically building them. Mm-hmm. 
and and I love that because you're repurposing content, which is another thing that I preach to people all the time. Oh yes, is, I'm big on that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, if you already have things written, whether you have a blog that's five years old that you have, you know, you've written um, about cooking for the last you know, five years, three blog posts a month or, you know, one a week or whatever, and you have all this content, you don't have to reinvent your, yourself. You can take the best of your content and put it together, rework it, and create a book. Well, I always tell when authors come to me about the possibility of working to do an enhanced ebook, um, one of the things that I tell them is that um, if you put this up, and even if you make $5 a month, that's $5 you didn't have before. Yes. There really is no downside to it. The only possible downside that I can see is if people put out material that isn't quite ready. Yes. And people read it and feel that they're not an author that they enjoy, then five years from now when the author is ready and polished and seasoned, they may have turned off a portion of their potential audience. That's really the only downside that I can see. But the fact is, you can be published by, you can be J.K. Rowling and there's people who don't like Harry Potter. You can be Dan Brown. There's a lot of people who don't like Dan Brown. So the fact is... <laughs> And this this is not me insulting Dan Brown. I've personally never read his work. I just hear things. Right. But the fact is, being published by a major house in no way saves you from writing something that someone won't like. Because I assure you, someone won't like it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, who's to say that if J.K. Rowling were starting out now instead of, you know, when she did, that she would have probably taken the independent publishing route because so many people turned her down at the beginning. Well, look what she's doing with Pottermore. I mean, this is something yeah. completely different. But, I mean, talk about someone who gets where publishing is going or at least what a multimedia platform could be in conjunction with books and print and other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's brilliant. Um, you know, for those of you that don't know, J.K. Rowling built her own world, uh, and it's, it's at Pottermore.com. Yes, and she's in control of it. This is not going through her publisher. This is all yeah. her. Yep. So in a way, you can say J.K. Rowling has gone independent. Yep, she's gone indie, and she's done it in a way that her fans and her fan base can interact with her. And, you know, she's a very private person and never really liked doing interviews and everything anyway. So this is a way for her to be out there without having to be out there. And it's controlling her own universe. Yes. She can, she can control it and write whatever additional material she wants and whatever interactivity she wants. It's a quality control issue as well. Yeah, and she doesn't have to publish a full novel again. She can just right. write stories from yep. here until eternity. She can just write stories, have people give their input on them, and just go from there. And I think that's something that new authors... Um, need to be aware of probably most of them aren't ready for for that yet because again you need to be able to put good work out there you can't just slap something up and say oh I think this would be fun and boom and then expect you know immediate adoption of the idea you well, you can you can do that I know what the consequences to such an action would be that's the whole thing exactly <laughs> exactly so, you know, one point that you brought up is all of your work is professionally edited and almost every author that I've interviewed in the series so far, um, except for one, has said that they have used outside editors um, and whether they were, if they're independently published people, they are authors that have 
established a relationship with an editor that understood their writing and their writing style and that was um, a good fit for them to work with. So they weren't, you know, given to an editor in a, in a big publishing house that may not have the same vision that they do. They were actually able to interview um, editors and come up with editors that were good for them, but every single one of them had an editor that gave them, you know, feedback and deep editing, not just copy editing, but, you know. Well, the funny thing about that with copy editing is I'll tell you, because I've been going through my previously published books and once I uh, had them scanned and turned into electronic books, you have to go through it and you have to check because there's tons of mistakes. No matter how good of a scanning program it is, you have to go through it. And I used a printed copy of the book as a reference so I could check when I wasn't sure about something. And sure enough, there has not been a single one of my books released by a major New York publisher that me going over it with a fine tooth comb, I have not found mistakes that ended up in the printed version and that's awesome because that's sad but (laughs) (laughs) that's you know I mean and and it's it's a sign of professionalism and it's also a sign that um that you're interested in what the reader wants and not just following your own ego and saying you know this is what I want to say and screw the rest of you I don't care if you get it if you get it or not um, you know, well, and coming from television, the, the attitude in television is really very, very different than it is in books because television is a mass medium and it's a commercial medium. And no one, um, not even you know David E. Kelly or anybody else or Aaron Sorkin can completely ignore the fact that they're writing for a mass commercial medium and they have to listen to the people who embrace their work. So I think coming from TV has actually been very beneficial for me in that respect because I never came from a theory. Also, I never came from one person. It's one person's voice because any television show has so many people, writers, directors, actors. It's a a simple thing as, you know, an actress gets pregnant and you have to rewrite the whole story. I know. (laughs) You're always ready to turn on a dime. So I think I was very fortunate in that so much of my background is in television that I came in with a slightly different attitude than I think a lot of people come into traditional novel writing in that I'm ready to collaborate. In fact, I love to collaborate. I love hearing how people respond to my work and where they think it should go next. And honestly, I got to tell you, and this isn't just a matter of blowing smoke, they ha- I've had r- readers come up with some fantastic ideas where they've made a connection between two points. And I went, wow, why didn't I see that? That's perfect. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, I don't reluctantly do that. I love doing that. And that's right. with, with Counterpoint, the book that I'm doing interactively, is that's part of the fun for me. It's not something I'm gritting my teeth through. It's something I'm loving. Yep. And that is so perfect because, again, there are a lot of writers who, you know, possibly rightly so, they want to tell their story and they want to tell it their own way. Um, don't be discouraged if, if that's what you want to do, but you do need to be open to the new lines of communication that you need to have with your readership that you didn't have to have before. You know, like, uh, I don't know, if you come up with a writer from the, you know, the 40s or the 50s that wrote classics, you can't go back and tell them how you would like the story to be. But in today's society, a new a new author that comes out or an established author like yourself that rebrings something out, you know, you need to be ready to take the... the uh, backlash from whatever you do because now people can get you, you know, <laughs> not, not get you, get you. I'm sorry. <laughs> people can get to you in a way that, you know, they can, they can communicate with you. They can go to your message board. They can go to your Twitter, 
They can go to your Facebook account. They can get their point across to you uh, where in the past that wasn't possible. You know, writers were more isolated. Right. Well, not only that, but simply look at the traditional process. Maybe you wrote the full manuscript. Maybe you just wrote a proposal. You sent it off to publishers. Let's, let's, let's lose the agent part of the equation where you're sending it out to agents. You're sending it out to publishers. That's at least maybe six months on a, you know, on a good turnaround. Mm-hmm. You get offered a contract. You finish writing the book. I mean, when I wrote my soap opera tie-ins, because soaps move so quickly, they had to be written very quickly. They basically had to be written in six weeks. So I produced right. the entire manuscript in six weeks. It was edited. It's still, by the time it was typeset and copy edited and printed and shipped and on the shelves, it was about a year later. Now, if you're writing soap operas, this is a bit of a problem because the character who was dead when I wrote the book was alive by the time it was published. So that was a minor little problem. But the fact is... and. We had done it on what was considered a very fast turnaround, basically about a year. Most people with a traditional book that doesn't have a hard deadline to hit, like it has to you know, mesh with a story or a particular date, it's easily two years from the start of the process to the end. So even if you want to take input, how are you going to do that? Right, right. And, and there you go. Uh, a lot of self-published people that I've been interviewing have been bringing up the point that you know they want to talk about something contemporary. And when they approached traditional publishers about it, it was by the time the book was going to come out, the thing that they did the the book about is going to be over with. Nobody's going to remember. Right. Right. So, like you said, with the soap operas, if you wait a year, the whole storyline, yeah, this person was dead and now they came back and now they got kids. And, you know, the whole story is completely different than it was a year ago. Um, I, I think that's fascinating that you worked in the soap opera industry. I'll I'll share a story with you later after we're off the call. Um, we um, so if you had something that you wanted to tell a beginning author, what would you tell them? Well, the first thing I would tell them is that something that I think goes against all advice that's usually given. Usually, they tell you write the book of your heart. I'm like, that's nice. You can write the book of your heart when you're a bestseller. You got to look around and you got to see what's selling and you got to know who your market is. One of the things with the figure skating mysteries is in addition to working in soaps, I also spent several years working for, I worked for ABC Sports for their coverage of nationals and the world championships. I was at the 1998 Nagano Olympics for um, TNT. I've worked for ESPN. So I was very familiar with the skating world. Not only was I familiar with the skating world from the point of view of working in the skating world, but I was very familiar with the skating world from the point of, I knew all the editors at all the magazines. I knew the websites. I knew where the fandom was. I knew where my audience was. Mm -hmm. It's same thing, exactly the same thing with the soaps in that when I wrote the book and when I produced the book, I knew where my audience was. I knew where to find them. I had some idea of how to approach them. Nobody ever really in marketing knows really how to approach them. But that was the key. And I would tell a beginning author, if you just want to write a book for fun that you love and you want to put it up there and you want to see what happens, that's great. I would certainly never stop anybody from doing that. But if you want to look at this as a career, if you want to treat this as something professional, then you really, before you even write the book, you need to know where your audience is. I think that's brilliant. That is a point that hadn't been brought up yet. So that's that's really cool. And, um, and, the, and the other thing which ties into where your audience is, is if you're going to write in a genre or you're going to write about the field, you better love that field. 
because people and readers can absolutely see when you're faking it. You know what people say, you know what, I think I'll write a romance because those sell really well and I've never read one, but I'm going to head and write one because I think that's what people want to buy and maybe it'll have vampires in it. Or um, if I, you know, I think I'll write a mystery because you know, Sherlock Holmes did it, so how hard could it be? That's not going to work. I mean, okay, maybe if you're a genius, maybe it will. But on the off chance that you are not a genius, writing in a genre that you are not familiar with, that you don't love, that you maybe even a little bit hold in contempt because you think it's so easy that anybody could whip this out in a weekend, <laughs> that'll work. Yeah. I was going to try doing that whole romance thing. I was going to have a group of girls get together and have a slumber party and have wine and have a uh, cooperatively write a romance in a weekend. <laughs> it didn't happen, and I don't think it would be able to work even if we tried. <laughs> well, it's their people who love the genre. I right. think if you've, if you've been reading romance novels for 20 years, there is absolutely nothing wrong with you trying to write one. Will your first one be saleable? Probably not. But the fact is, it will definitely not be saleable if you just try to write something. for it's, it's the flip side of what I said about the marketing. On the one hand, you must absolutely know where your audience is. But on the other hand, if you just write for an audience without being a part of that audience, I think that will come through. And I don't think it will create a very good work. That's, that's excellent advice as well, because I do know some folks that, you know, are getting into areas that they don't necessarily have a background in and that's you know one of the things that you want to do is make sure that if you're going to write about um you know your main character being an airline pilot you better know something about airline pilots and how the world works or people are going to see right through you well to be fair my book annie's wild ride does have two air force pilots in it and i later received an email informing me that i had completely skipped to the part where they go to flight school but <laughs> the on the other hand, it was a romance where they're going to flight school was really not the point. Right. It was just the setting, and it was about two people who met at the Air Force Academy and then became military pilots. So if I had been writing nonfiction or maybe even a Tom Clancy-like thriller, that yeah. might have had more of a relevance. But I would like to say right now, Mia Culpa, I am very sorry that I skipped the part where they go to flight school. <laughs> that was just not part of the romance. They, we, just, we just took those weeks off and skipped ahead. <laughs> Skipped ahead in time. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, this is all really, really great information. I, um, I I love the way you are very animated and are able to share things with people and get your point across, which, you know, that's another thing. In addition to being a good author, you're a good speaker. And oh, I talk about myself. <laughs> um, one of the things with the Book Goodies podcast is that we're trying to give authors a voice and instead of just giving you, you know, a form to fill out, which is, you know, a flat way of getting to know authors, you know, we, we give you a chance to get your voice and your opinions and let your readers get to know you. And it sounds like you're going to let your readers get to know you whether you're on podcasts or not, because you're going to throw a little something here and there into the book that's going to um, really make yourself accessible and, and be interactive. Well, not only am I going to let the readers get to know me, I really would like to get to know them. As I said, um, the links in CounterPoint, an interactive family saga, they go to a message board, they go to the Alina Adams Media Facebook page. So I think in that way, we're going to get to know each other. I think that's great. 
And the message board sends them to Facebook, or how do they go to one or the other, or how does it's, that it's work? One, it's one or the other. Basically, at the end of the book, you have two options, because despite what Mark Zuckerberg would like us to think, not everyone on the planet is on Facebook. So I give people the option. They can go to Facebook, which is Alina Adams Media, or they can go to the Soap Opera 451 message board, which is a message board that goes with a blog of mine that I use for a lot of my uh, creative writing projects. That's awesome. I, I love that because, again, it's the interactivity that's going to make you grow as an author and that is going to make your readership and your fan base grow. You know, I mean, the the most famous actors and the best, uh, you know, the most popular ones are the ones that make themselves accessible at some level. Um, you know. I think all creative people these days have to be, and I know there's some people who don't like it, but the fact is there have always been, for instance, actors who hate doing interviews, mm-hmm. and they don't understand that it's part of the job, and there's consequences, and I mean, I don't judge them for whether they like it or not, but the fact is that has consequences, and I think in this day and age, every single creative person has to understand that a part of the job is putting yourself out there. You know, from um, the Stephen Sondheim Sunday in the Park with George, there's a song, Putting It Together, that Barbara Streisand also recorded. And one of the lines is she talks about so that you can go on exhibition, and then she stops and corrects herself so that your work can go on exhibition, which is nice and great, but I really don't think that was ever true. I mean, this song was written, I believe, I'm sure more Sondheim fans will correct me whether it was written in the 70s or the 80s, but it was written 30 years ago, and it's even truer today. It would be nice if just your work could go on exhibition, but the fact is now it's a whole package. Yeah, and look at all the rock stars that are from the 70s and 80s and 90s, but I I like the really older ones from the 70s (laughs) and 80s that are all of a sudden going back out on tour. Well, music is actually a perfect example because with pirating and CDs and iPods and everything else, the fact is putting out an album is no longer the way that you make money as a musician. You... So many musicians are now giving away the music for free so they can make money on what's surrounding it, the tour and the merchandise and everything mm-hmm. else. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, Gene Simmons is one of the people who does it perfectly. <laughs> oh, Gene Simmons is a genius. Can I just tell you that? <laughs> and it's not that I'm even a huge fan of the music or of the man or anything else, but, oh, my God, he is a genius. Yeah, I mean, he's a marketing god. Yeah. Um, and I'm, and it's really funny that because I've been watching his show and following, you know, what he does for the past few years, all of a sudden I'm seeing other musicians suddenly that haven't been around doing anything for a while. And I'm like, they watched Family Jewels. <laughs> they watched, they watched what Gene was doing because now all of a sudden there's this uh, rock star coming out with a chain of restaurants that never did before. Oh, and I got to say that uh, we were watching an episode and um, uh, my boyfriend and I, and, and we were like, he, Gene Simmons needs a restaurant. He needs a <laughs> restaurant chain. Don't you know, two weeks later, I saw a press release that he's opening a restaurant chain. And I was like, well, that was about the only thing he hadn't done yet. You know, you can, you can get his face on almost anything, including unmentionables. So, you know, um, but that's what, you know, again, and, when Kiss started out, they were in the make. You know, they wore the makeup, right? And they well, wore the makeup to hide their identity. Mm-hmm. And then they eventually learned. One of the key things about Kiss 
Gene Simmons was the first person to trademark the name of his band so that yeah. he could sell merchandise and everything else, even before everything else. That's, he was already thinking that way. He, as, as he said, there were tons of bands named Kiss before they came along, but they trademarked it. Yep. And, and, and to my point, they also they hid their identity. You didn't know who was behind the mask. Mm-hmm. And then they did come to a point, you know, a lot of authors, they want to hide behind the mask. Kiss came to a point where they knew they had to be not in the makeup all the time and they needed to let people connect with them personally mm-hmm. so that they could grow as musicians and as a band and become even more spectacularly famous and rich than they were already. <laughs> even richer, such a thing were possible. Even richer. Well, you know, they've got a great legacy that they left for their kids. <laughs> So, well, um, Alina, this has been awesome. Um, Can you, once again, uh, for our listeners that are listening via iTunes and didn't go to the website to get this, um, can you give them your a couple of website links so that they know where they can go and find you? Absolutely. The primary one is alinaadams.com or alinaadamsmedia.com, and Alina is spelled A-L-I-N-A. You can also find me at SoapOpera451.com, which has the message boards that I mentioned earlier for CounterPoint. And you can find me on Twitter at SoapOpera451, as well as Facebook at Alina Adams Media. Love it. Um, I want to thank you so much for being my guest this evening. And I hope thank to you. I hope to do a follow-up with you in a couple of months to see how some of these projects worked out. Oh, I'd love that. (laughs) And um, as always, um, listeners, you can go to bookgoodies.com and you can look up Alina Adams to find this podcast. And you can leave us comments and, uh, you know, suggestions for future shows. And if you are an author that would like to be on one of our podcasts, we have a contact us link at the top of bookgoodies.com. And there's also a tell us about your book link where you can go in and give us the details about your books and we will um, get that posted to our website. Um, you can also find us at BookGoodies uh, Twitter, twitter.com slash BookGoodies and facebook.com slash BookGoodies. And you can find me at twitter.com slash Loxley, L-O-X-L-Y. And you can also uh, find me at my own personal website, which is DebraCarney.com. As always, we want to thank uh, geekcast.fm, G-E-E-K-C-A-S-T.fm for hosting all of our podcasts and where you can go to find other uh, really fun uh, podcasts about affiliate marketing and internet marketing and and just all things marketing. Uh, Lots of really great podcasts there. So I want to thank everyone for listening. So sit down, get writing, and have a great day.